Welcome to the RUF Berkeley podcast. RUF is a campus fellowship centered around experiencing and expressing the love of God to our campus, our classmates, and our community. For more information, check out our website at rufberkeley.com or find us on Instagram at rufberkeley. Psalm 130, my soul waits for the Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. One of the things that I've been saying frequently throughout um, this series is that the the Psalms of Ascent, which is Psalms 120 through 134, they shape for us uh, the expectations of the normal Christian life. And this is really important because there's a lot of misperceptions about what the Christian life actually looks like and what it actually feels like. Um, Many people have the perception that being a Christian means that you never have negative thoughts or you never have bad days or you smile constantly or you never lose your temper and never say bad words um, and so on. But the the Psalms of Ascent, one of the beautiful things about them is that they show us that the Christian life is actually quite the opposite of that. The Christian life is is often full of doubts and it is full of of struggles, and it's full of suffering, and it's full of neediness, and it's full of wandering away from the path. And and our psalm tonight, Psalm 130, uh, it actually reminds us that uh, even in the Christian life, we are um, bound to fall into the depths of sin and guilt and shame, even, even as Christians. Uh, the psalmist now is well on his journey, well on the road of this Christian life. And here in Psalm 130, we have this total cry for help, uh, tears that are actually induced by the guilt and shame of sin in his life. So there's three things that I want us to look at tonight with this psalm uh, and what the psalmist models for us. The first is... Uh, crying to God. The psalmist models for us uh, the importance of crying to God. Second, waiting on God. And the third, hoping in God. So crying to God, waiting on God, and hoping in God. Um, so let's, let's look at the first one, crying to God. Um, like, like so many psalms, uh, the very first thing we see the psalmist doing in Psalm 130 is going to God with his tears. Going to God with his tears. And I think that we could actually just kind of stop here and ask ourselves that question. Do do we go to God with our tears? Because time and time again, we see the psalmist praying his tears uh, to God. And, And some of you probably do go to God with your tears. And I think that that takes... Uh, a real depth of intimacy for us to trust God um, with that kind of vulnerability. 
So there's, there's good news right off the bat in this psalm, and that's that God listens to our tears. Even our tears can constitute prayers. Um, and yet so often um, we're encouraged to hide our tears in relationships and stressful moments and conflict. Tears can be seen as a sign of weakness, but um, this is not the case in the image that we have here in Psalm 130. God actually listens to our tears and he expects us to go to him with our tears. Um, we can go to God with any tears, all different kinds of tears. No matter why we're crying, we can bring them to God. But Psalm 130 isn't just about uh, generic tears um, that you watch some kind of, you watch The Notebook and it made you cry. It's made me cry before. If you haven't seen The Notebook, watch The Notebook. It's a great romance, romantic. Yeah, there's another adjective that belongs in there, but I don't know exactly what I'd call it. Uh, the Notebook is a great movie. Uh, big fan of Rachel McAdams. And uh, anyways, these aren't just generic tears, right? Unlike many of the other psalms that we've covered, um, the psalmist is not crying about um, being oppressed. It's not because of oppression. He's not crying because of some sort of suffering at the hands of his enemies. The psalmist is not crying because of some dangerous situation <clears throat> that he finds himself in on the road to Jerusalem. Um, the psalmist is crying out to God specifically because of his own shortcomings. He's crying out to God because of his own brokenness. He's crying out to God because of his own sin. These are guilt-induced tears. Okay, guilt-induced tears. And it's, and it's those kind of tears in particular that I think we struggle with. Um, for one, we've got all sorts of pseudo-gods that we turn to with, with guilt-induced tears. And usually what we're actually doing by turning to those pseudo-gods is we're trying to find some sort of affirmation. Um, we take the guilty tears, uh, for example, we take the guilty tears of our sexual brokenness and we, we repackage it under the guise of sexual liberation we take the tears of our insecurity and we repurpose those tears um, for a false superiority complex and we mock and we bully, perhaps. We take the tears of our limitations, the tears of our failures, and we, we run and find false hope in some sort of <clears throat> self-help guru. We take the tears of our anxiety, of our anxious souls, and we take them to mindfulness apps. Rather than taking these tears, these guilt-induced tears, to God himself. But in many cases, um, we've become so numb to our own sin that we have no tears to shed at all. There's, in fact, I would say that I... I probably relate to this, um, this trait more than even running to the pseudo-gods. Like, oftentimes I just feel numb. There's no kind of shock to our conscience. There's no heartbeat to our personal holiness. We're kind of flatlined. Uh, but, but, when, but even when we are numb to guilt, uh, when we are, even when we're numb to guilt, we're never numb to shame. I think uh, Tim Keller, uh, he's a pastor out of New York City. I think he frames this conversation really helpfully. He says that guilt is, is easier to numb 
because guilt, uh, in a basic sense, simply has to do with following the rules. So you either, you either do it, you either follow the rule, or you don't. But shame, shame, which is, I don't want to drive too much of a distinction uh, between shame and guilt. There's definitely plenty of overlap there. In fact, I think they're um, kind of inevitably bound together. But there is a distinction between the two. Shame, shame is connected to identity in a really unique way. So, so modern people, right, can convince themselves that they are immune from guilt. We don't even really use that terminology too much anymore. Um, and we, we're, we can convince ourselves that we're immune from, built, from guilt by using various coping me- mechanisms because mainly guilt is a response to an act. You do something and you feel guilty. But shame, what's distinctive about shame is that shame creates an identity around the act. So for example, guilt says, I cheated on this exam. Act, right? I cheated on this exam. Shame says, I am a cheater. You see the difference? One is, that one is an identity. Shame gets into our identity bones and our identity DNA. And so no matter how numb you are to guilt, Everyone still walks around with the sense that something is fundamentally wrong with them. And that's because the identity of shame is inescapable. Shame is just kind of who we are. We are ashamed as people, even if we bury it deep down. I mean, it is not a coincidence that um, we can't have conversations about identity and identity politics, just to put it lightly, without feelings being hurt. Identity and shame are always very closely connected. Our identities are bound up with shame. And so the question is, is how do we deal with this? How do we deal with this guilt and shame? What does the psalmist show us? Well, first he shows us, as we just went through, he, he, the first step is going to God with our tears, with the tears of our guilt and shame. And he, he says so because uh, in verse 4, with you there is forgiveness. So that's why the psalmist is, is firstly going to God with his tears. But then he shows us, as we keep reading the passage, then he shows us what it looks like in the day-to-day as we deal with our guilt and our shame, and even as we continue to struggle throughout the Christian life. So the first thing is he shows us the importance of crying to God. The next thing as it relates to the day-to-day is he shows us the importance of waiting on God, waiting on God. Let's, let's read verses 5 through 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. The psalmist is the psalmist is waiting on God to do what only God can do. In the day-to-day of his life, the psalmist is waiting on God to do what only God can do because we cannot perfect ourselves. We cannot fix ourselves. We cannot make all things new. Only God can make all things new. And so the psalmist is saying part of the Christian life is waiting on God to do what only God can do. 
Now, what does it take? Um, what does it take for someone to realize that waiting on God is actually part of the healing process, part of the process of transformation, the, the passive activity of waiting on God? What does it take to realize that? The answer is that you have to realize the depth of your guilt. You have to realize the depth of your guilt. I want you to look at how the psalmist cries out. Where is he when he cries out in verse one? He says, out of the depths, I cry to you. Out of the depths, I cry to you. The the psalmist has hit rock bottom. And so what he's saying is that only in the depths can we admit that we can't fix ourselves. Only in the depths can we admit that our guilt is real. Only in the depths can we see the shame of our identity. But also only in the depths can we bring our tears to God with such healing vulnerability. That's the beauty of the deep. It's that only when we're at the end of ourselves do we begin to embrace the beginning of God. That's what the depths do to us. That's how God's strength shines in our weaknesses. And so the psalmist has finally admitted um, that I need to wait on God and his timing because I can't fix myself. Someone else has to do it. I need to wait on God to do only what God can do. And one reason why waiting on God is so important is because when we don't, we, we tend to gain a skewed view of ourselves. And so it's usually one of two things. One, we either tend towards uh, heroism or uh, self-despair. So on the one hand, many of us try to be the hero of our own story. Uh, I, I would imagine this is fairly common at a place like Berkeley. We try to be the hero of our own story. And so um, this is, for example, uh, this is the heart of legalism and religiosity. I'm not righteous enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not holy enough, but if I can make up a bunch of new rules to follow, then I can be the hero. I can conquer my foes. I can turn myself into what I think I need to be turned into. Uh, Careerism is another thing. You don't just have to be a religious person to do this. Careerism is another form of becoming your own hero. You've identified all of these needs and all of these necessities for life, and you can't imagine your life without them. And so you become the hero of your own story and your entire life revolves around work. You work yourself to the bone trying to secure a functional eternal life for yourself. And then one day, like a vapor, you're gone. You're dead. And so you're you're a hero who couldn't even save your own life. Uh, and then there's a tendency to veer towards self-despair. So if you're on the other end of the spectrum, you, you look at life and you look at all of life's op- obstacles. You look at your guilt and you look at your shame and you look at the, the constant, repetitive, addictive behavior in your life. You look at the cycles of sin that you just cannot break. And what do you do? You decide to wallow in self-despair and self-pity. And it's not just that, that you can't fix it. You wallow in self-despair because no one can fix your mess. Because no one understands you. No one gets what you've been through. No one gets what you struggle with. So you fall into the depths 
of self-despair. And the irony is that the reality of both of these forms, or both of these responses, is that they're both a form of narcissism. Both of these approaches put you at the center of the universe, and everything is determined by you. Either as a hero, you will try to save yourself, or as despotic and in self-despair, you decide there's no one able to save you. And so, at the very least, one of the practical benefits of waiting on God is that it takes the pressure off of you. And gosh, that is, that is a burden that none of us can bear. But God, the psalmist is trying to paint this picture for us, God was built to bear this, and he does bear this on the cross. In Jesus, I mean, I think one of the most powerful illustrations for waiting on God is Jesus himself. Think about this. Have you, have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't just resurrect on the Saturday after he was crucified? Crucified on a Friday. Why didn't he resurrect on, on a Saturday? Why did he wait till Sunday? Why did he wait three days? And, and at least part of the answer to that is that Jesus is modeling for us as he waits on God to do what only God can do. And that's bring life to dead people. Jesus waits. And so we wait. And so this leads us to our last point. The, the psalmist shows us the importance of bringing our tears to God, of crying to God. The psalmist shows us the importance of waiting on God uh, to do what only God can do. And then lastly, the psalmist shows us the importance of hoping in God, the importance of hoping in God. The psalmist doesn't just wait on God. He doesn't just wait on God because he's exhausted of his own self-saving project. The psalmist waits on God ultimately because his hope is in God. And so if waiting on God means that we're waiting on God to do what only God can do, hoping in God means that you trust that God will do what only God can do. I want to look at this last verse, or sorry, the second to last verse, verse seven here. Uh, listen to the psalmist. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. Do you see the great exchange that's taking place here from the beginning of this psalm till the end? The psalmist, and, and we too, we give God our guilt. The psalmist, and, and we too, give God our shame, and he gives us his love. The psalmist hopes in God because God takes our shameful identity and he gives us a covenant identity. Listen to the language of verse 7. For the Lord, or sorry, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. The, the word there in the Hebrew is chesed, which is, um, uh, this is the love of God that, that binds himself to us in a marriage covenant, which means that God is bound by his own nature to love those he covenants with. So that means, to, to, to belabor the point, that it would actually be unjust for God to remove his love from you 
because he has covenanted to love you forever. He takes your shameful, unloved identity and marries himself to you, giving you an eternal covenant identity of steadfast, rock-solid, indelible love. The psalmist also hopes in God because with him is plentiful redemption. So at, at the beginning of the psalm, like while, while we're sinking in the depths of our guilt, verse 7 says God soaks us in the depths of his redemption. You are totally transferred. You are totally transferred from the depths of darkness Uh, from the dregs of self-despair and the exhaustion of heroism to the heights of hoping in God as he makes all things new. So he hopes in this, this covenant identity, from a shameful identity to a covenant identity rooted in the steadfast love, and he hopes in this plentiful redemption that gives God his guilt and God soaks us in the depths of his redemption. But there's something that's even more ultimate than that that kind of roots all of those things uh, and, and what is it? What does the psalmist know that God will ultimately do? And I want you to look at the very last verse to see this in verse 8. It says, and he himself, so that's repetitive. The third person uh, singular in the Hebrew there is repetitive. There's two he's there, and that's meant to bring emphasis. So he himself will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. God himself will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. What the psalmist knows will be done, we know has been done. What the psalmist is waiting for and what the psalmist is hoping in, we too wait and hope for it in certain ways, but we know that it has been done because on the cross, he himself God himself in the flesh, Jesus, redeemed us. He purchased our redemption. And the guilt and the shame that was on our back, there on the cross, Jesus puts it on his back. And they are now, in the language of verse 8, they are now his iniquities. And we now have his righteousness. Um, This is the beautiful thing that I love about the Psalms. It's that this is where your tears can take you. This is where your tears can take you. Your tears, they can take you to the foot of the cross. They can take you to Jesus. Because Jesus goes into the depths for us and Jesus cries out to God for us and Jesus rises up again for us. So I want to leave you simply with this charge tonight as you continue uh, either on your way uh, as an apprentice to Jesus or as you consider the way of Jesus. Take your tears to him because he's listening. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you that um, you always hear us, even through our tears no matter even the motives of our tears. You know our motives. You know our intentions, and yet you still listen, and you parse through 
the good and the bad, and you lift us up. And so we pray that even tonight as we pray, um, now and after large group, before we go to bed, we pray that you again would listen and you would answer our prayers. And we pray especially um, that in this life, even in the trials, um, even in the midst of our sin, we would see Jesus as uh, worth crying to. We would see Jesus as worth waiting on. We would see Jesus as worth hoping in. Um, And we would see him as more beautiful and more believable than other things we're tempted to place our heart in. Lord, we give you thanks, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.